Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about venture capital, where investors and founders alike can learn how VCs make decisions and reach conviction. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Ty Finley joins us today from Austin. Ty is managing partner at Iron Spring Ventures, a firm dedicated to investing in early stage digital industrial innovation. Prior to Iron Spring, Ty spent time at GE Ventures, supporting investments in desktop metal, zometry, and site machine. And he was a VP at Pritzker Group Venture Capital, leading investments in Plus One Robotics, Freight Waves, and Augmenteer. Ty, welcome back to the show. Great to be on, Nick. Thanks for having me. I uh, I feel like I had a front row seat while I was in Chicago to to watch you build up your brand in the venture <laughs> ecosystem. And in all sincerity, super impressive, Nick. And I'm glad we can now jump on a podcast together. Well, you've been a, a great mentor, advisor, you know, collaborator for many years. And um, yeah, we had you on the show as part of a panel. I, I want to say that was three plus years ago, maybe. Wow, that was with the DMDII. That was a few years ago. I, I forgot all about that. Yeah, a long time ago. Well, welcome back. Um, you know, on that panel, we didn't really get a chance to talk much about backgrounds and all that. Um, but can you kind of start out with your background and, and path to venture? Sure. Um, I, I definitely call it more of a journey than a path. That's for sure. It's It's been a fun journey. And for me, it really all starts and ends with the word industrial in some form or fashion. Um, I, I grew up in the middle of nowhere, East Texas, a couple of generations of family that founded companies in manufacturing ecosystem. So I really lived industrials growing up. And I, and I saw if you're not digitizing, it, it's hard to stay competitive. And, and I also took away a firm appreciation for just how big an impact industrials have on our daily consumer life, oftentimes behind the scenes, and, and really the amazing skilled laborers who make all of this happen. And I can assure you through this pandemic, that work didn't stop because of COVID. And I think we all owe those workers a, a great deal of appreciation. And, and I guess that was really the foundation that set me off on my current path. Um, went and got an engineering degree and was fortunate with my first job out of school uh, with Boeing up in Seattle, working on special projects within the CTO's office. Really great opportunity to work across all of Boeing's business units, really focused on a decade ago deploying some of these technologies like advanced design methods, industrial IoT, robotics, supply chain automation, et cetera. And as an engineer, getting to deploy those technologies to business units all across the world it was really great exposure and, and it really made me sympathetic to why it's so challenging to sell technology into these industrial markets. You know, there, there's a lot at stake. And I know you know this, Nick, from, from your experience, there's a lot of at stake within an OEM production environment. And, and now as a venture investor, I always try to put myself in the customer's position when evaluating uh, evaluating how they're going to purchase technology. And, you know, everyone jokes about the, hey, buy SAP before you buy a startup if you want to keep your job in these environments. But, but think about it this way, right? Um, in Renton, Washington, you know, just because you deploy new technology 
maybe you've inhibited the 737 production line in some form or fashion. It, it's less about that one airplane. You, you, are, you are actually stopping GDP that was supposed to fly between, call it Guangdong, China and Beijing because of that slip up. So I, I guess the point here is just an appreciation for the, the level of stakes we're playing with when it comes to industrial automation. Um, so then during my time at Boeing, I also figured out I was never the smartest engineer in any room. So I ultimately decided to make a career change, went to business school, focused on breaking into tech in some form or fashion. And, and the short story is that I've now been at three different venture funds before jumping out on my own to help start our new digital industrial focus fund, Iron Spring Ventures. And one of those three venture firms was GE Ventures, as you mentioned, where digital industrial and supply chain applications around sensors and data, analytics, robotics, additive logistics, you name it. I was really fortunate to have paired um, my background as engineer investing in similar solutions that I had experience with. And so great opportunity, great leadership at GE Ventures. I I owe a lot of my career to that opportunity um, from the perspective of venture capital, but also from the perspective of learning how innovation is driven internally at the highest level of corporate management. And I think both of these, as we'll talk about, are critical for startups to understand in tandem if you're ever selling into large industrial customers who are relatively less risk tolerant and have slower sales cycles, et cetera. So did that. And then I moved over and spent some time at the Pritzker Group Venture Capital team in Chicago, another fantastic experience to really help expand that platform's digital industrial and supply chain footprint within the venture ecosystem. And and ultimately partner up with some some great founders. So winding this all back home to Iron Spring Ventures, uh, the short story here is I ended up leading a deal while at Pritzker Group, where one of my co-investors was one of my now current partners, Peter John Holt. Uh, and so him, myself, and my other partner, Adam, all hit it off where we thought there was a gap in the market and uh, the rest is history. So they say. Well, I mean, you you kind of said it there and in, in- we connected, I think, pre-COVID and, well, certainly pre-COVID in, in Austin, talked a bit about the transition. But, you know, why leave Pritzker? I mean, you had a good thing going there, um, you know, careers taken off, doing great investments, and uh, uh, you left to found a new firm. You know, why why do that? Yeah, the, really the credit for taking the leap of faith here, it, it has to go to the founders out there. And, and I mean that in all sincerity. You know, after hundreds of conversations with industrial innovators who kept telling me about the struggles to raise early stage capital for their solution. Um, at some point, I guess, for anyone that's jumping out to be an emerging manager, you, you just come to this complete conviction that there was a gap in the venture capital ecosystem that that needed to be filled uh, to support these women and men who maybe don't get the flashy headlines like a consumer product, but are advancing critical industries and infrastructure that, again, make our country operate efficiently behind the scenes. And, and honestly, oftentimes without much credit given to them at all, even if they are successful. So, um, And then on the flip side, from a venture fund perspective, I, I firmly believe that if a founder from the beginning takes the right capitalization strategy and is capital efficient in attacking these industrial markets, um, they're huge. And, and the, the ones we focus on are massive opportunities to both drive a bunch of value to customers and in turn generate great returns for Iron Spring Fund 1, right? To put it in perspective, uh, manufacturing alone in this country is 11% of GDP, 9% of the workforce. Construction, another vertical we focus on, 6 to 7% of the GDP with 9 million workers growing 3% a year. So, you know, we cannot afford to leave these industries behind as tech expands. And it's just too important to all of us. And, and we think there's really great returns to be made. 
Ooh, I've got one in mind for you, Ty. It's a, a stealth deal we we just closed. We'll have to uh, we'll Love have it. to chat a bit offline. But um, okay, so Iron Spring certainly earlier stage uh, at large than than Pritzker. Um, just give us the high points on the thesis. You know, stage sector check size and kind of how you guys are different. Yeah, I, I like to define it into maybe three things that help us differentiate in market. And, and the first, the first is we are sector focused. We we are lasered in on investing in B two B digital industrial applications only. We're right? no consumer healthcare. Um, it's not what we know. It's we we want to invest in in what we, we're smart in. And so, digital industrial is a fancy buzzword, to, but think manufacturing, construction, transportation, and supply chain, energy resources, etc legacy industries, if you'll think of it that way. And I, I like to joke, if Mike Rowe and the Dirty Jobs crew, if that team would go film it, we want to find a way to bring software in to support it, making those <laughs> operations more That's productive, good. efficient, and profitable. And I mean it when I say I'd, I'd run with the brand of Mike Rowe of Venture Capital all day if I could get away with it. But uh, so far, this guy, Mike, he's uh, he's been elusive to my email. So if any of your <laughs> listeners know him, I'm trying to get a hold yeah, of him. Yeah, he could be the spokesperson for Iron Spring. Hey, um, I, if Mike, if you're out there listening, uh, hit, hit, hit me up. So, Doubtful. Um, and then maybe second, we're, we're very stage focused. And, and our hypothesis here from a fund construction perspective is we, we thought there was a gap between a lot of great seed funds who will take the risk of two founders and an idea with limited traction and a lot of great growth funds out there who will pour capital into these companies all day if they can show the detailed financial metrics of how that company is scaling nicely, right? In between those two ends of the spectrum, as I mentioned earlier, is is really where it's the hardest part for founders to raise that post seed Series A, you know, use vernacular loosely nowadays, whatever that round is, where Iron Spring can lead or co-lead a two to four million dollar check and more of that seven to ten million dollar round size, right, right between those two extremes. So, and the reason the round is often challenging, though not always the case, it, oftentimes pure revenue ramp can be a lagging indicator, honestly, to more industry-specific leading indicators that you'd only spot if you were really studying these markets deeply. And so on that front, think think like a signed MSA, took you nine months to lock it in after a bunch of small pilots or project side engagements, but you don't really have the revenue ramp to show for it just yet. Or uh, maybe as simple as this sounds, certain types of corporate system of record data access that's been granted to that company that's rarely given out at an early stage or, uh, you know, especially given all the infosec rules that have now matured, et cetera. So lots of these things that we're looking for like this in diligence that that go beyond, honestly, the wishful thinking you'll ever find a T2, D3 revenue trajectory in the industrial markets. Um, Maybe I'm I'm wrong, but I I just haven't seen it. So, and and then the final point about Iron Spring, I'd bring it really, we want to put the fund out there as we're built by operators for operators and, and not necessarily as operators usually get defined in, in venture and tech, but people that have come from industrial backgrounds and, and all of our partnership, as well as all of our LPs that range from family offices to corporates, they're all industrial operators in some form or fashion that can really help these founders understand the true boots on the ground dynamic going on in the industry. So all of that said, I, we're I want to make sure we're definitely not the first independent venture fund to run this playbook of sector-focused investing, plus having call it corporate LP backers who add specialized support. Yeah, you know, just name a few, right? Uh, great shops, Fifth Wall on the West Coast done an amazing job defining prop tech. Fontenelle's partners in Detroit reshaping mobility tech, and and maybe on the East Coast building ventures really defining the built world ecosystem. So we're really just trying to fold into a similar fast 
or path, but focused exclusively on early stage digital industrial. And, and my bet here, wrapping it up, would be you're only going to see more and more of these funds go down this path to provide specialized support with differentiated networks behind them. Good, good. Yeah. And, you know, we recently had Nikhil Bazu Trivedi on the show uh, talking about, you know, the specialists versus the agglomerators and um, um, kind of talked about, you know, LP preferences. You know, some really, uh, you know, prefer investing in specialized funds. That, think there's an edge there while others uh, think that the generalists will always outperform. You know, <laughs> I can imagine where you stand on this, but can you give us some color <laughs> on why you think sector focused is going to outperform, you know, the generalist counterparts? Yeah, well, first, um, Nikhil and I were exchanging notes about that's an awesome article. So if, if you listeners haven't read it, I, I would definitely recommend it as kind of the latest greatest on this topic that's been going on for you know a few years now in different forms or fashion. But I, I would say I really don't look at it in the lens of who will outperform who. Um, as all of our deals to date and likely all of our deals in the future will actually have a great blend of investors on the cap table, whether it's sector focused funds like us, more generalist funds, or even corporate venture capital. I mean, Corporate VC will always have a key role to play within dig- digital industrial investing, in my opinion, because of how close and you know, networked these type of opportunities are. Um, so ultimately, we believe it's a very collaborative, all hands on deck approach to support these companies that are facing some pretty brutal go to market realities within industrial markets. So I, I wouldn't look at it as a and or. Now, that said, I, I do think uh, the rise of sector focused funds, as I mentioned earlier, are, are bringing a new value proposition and, and new products, honestly, to founders uh, that are differentiated. If the topic's of interest, I'd encourage your listeners to check out a, a recent Freight Waves article. I, I partnered up with some fellow friends and co-investors at other sector-focused funds, uh, Dynamo VC, Schematic Ventures, and Fontenalis Partners, really where we were outlining why VCs are starting to specialize further. And you know, the catalyzers to this, to me, are pretty straightforward, right? Venture capital, getting hyper-competitive, record number of funds out there. There is a record high level of dry powder on the sidelines. It's flooded into the venture ecosystem because the public market growth opportunities are getting limited and interest rates are near zero, right? There's a lot of great research on this in, in the Bain private equity report they put out each year. But both of those dynamics of which have naturally in turn compressed the returns potential uh, of the asset class. And I think this was evidenced by Morgan Stanley's, I think it was Michael Mubasin put out his recent report outlining that the 30-year median PME, which stands for public market equivalent benchmark for venture capital has been one. And what that really means is if 30 years ago, you could have just put your cash in the market and probably done just as well, right? Yeah. So this- With returns, more, a lot more liquidity. It, exactly. The liquidity and premium that you're getting your capital stuck into a fund, right? So couldn't we could go down that soapbox all day. Right. But, you know, this returns compression happened in private equity, right? And and I have to believe, and it's my opinion, you're, you're going to see this play out in venture as well. So the point here is if I'm a top tier founder, there is a lot of capital, uh, a lot of options to choose from that look the same. So if, if I'm a founder, then looking to de-risk uh, her business at the earliest stages with a differentiated and diversified cap table, as, as we like to see, you know, we would ask, why wouldn't she pull in a sector-focused fund who brings deep expertise and associated networks to support building the company? Whether it's adding curated value such as sector-specific talent networks, deep corporate relationships with their target customers, and ultimately the M&A teams that are associated with those types of decisions down the road, strategic insights on industry-specific go-to-market topics such as product positioning, pricing norms, or typical buying cycles for these markets, 
to, to even fundraising strategy. How fast should we burn versus the sector's propensity to buy? And, and maybe ultimately introducing those founders to which venture capital firms we think in the next round of funding really understand the sector and, and would write a check. So all, all of these variables are things we think we bring to the table that have a complementary and different lens than other venture firms who maybe don't have the luxury of spending all of their time in, in our industrial sectors like we do. Got it. Got it. You know, Ty, we work in in an asset class that often promotes blitz scaling, you know, exponential growth. You said T2, T3, you know, triple twice, uh, double three times. And uh, often, in a, in a lot of cases, spending ahead of progress, right? Getting out in front of your skis with with capital. Um, you know, how do you rationalize the expectations of startups in our industry um, when you're investing in startups that are often entering industries that operate at a slower pace? You know, many of these are legacy heavy industrial industries. And, um, you know, these are, are, are the spaces that your startups are serving and there can be challenges and headwinds to, you know, moving at the breakneck, breakneck speed that's often expected, uh, in venture. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is the challenge and, and, and to be clear to a massive opportunity if you do it right. Um, so before I, I'm a little cynical on it, but yeah, to the question, what I, what I usually stress to founders in our ecosystem is to really begin with the end of mind. And what I mean by using that Dr. Covey phrase is for them to objectively set aside all the hype and posturing that's present in a lot of the venture ecosystem and really take a data-driven approach to where the market is valuing industrial innovation. Because this, this thought process really should be the guiding light of how a digital industrial startup goes to market and, and thinks about a capitalization strategy to match, uh, as you mentioned, how quickly you can actually scale in these environments, right? Um, not taking a blind look at other venture round sizes and valuations and say the consumer or pure database DevOps IT ecosystems that really buy and scale completely different, in my opinion. So I, I do think it's an education uh, that, that needs to happen. And maybe to bring some color here, I think examples are always the best way to highlight you know, what I mean by this. And I'll start with some bigger exits that recently happened and a couple more that are well-known in the venture ecosystem. Um, OSIsoft is an industrial data collection and storage company that just sold to Aviva, which is majority owned by Schneider Electric for $5 billion. bucks. That is a massively successful exit that most people forget that company's actually a 40-year overnight success, right? That founder, Dr. Kennedy, he's well-known for having been building this company and, and defining industrial tech as a data historian pioneer. But even for him, it took decades to generate that type of value that is oftentimes nowadays in venture capital, maybe thrown around as, call it a mediocre unicorn status somehow, if, if that even makes sense. Um, so that's one. And then the other big one, and I think this was the largest enterprise software exit of 2020 so far, uh, so far Epicor, right? Which is a major player in the manufacturing and supply chain software ecosystem sold for $4.7 billion. So another massive exit, although this one seems to be playing the PE to PE hot potato, uh, still a big exit. But again, the company was founded way back in 1972, right? So again, if you think about those numbers versus where ventures scale, thinking unicorn status, it, it, it certainly it kind of breaks the model a little bit. And maybe I'll compare those two more legacy companies um, to some of the largest industrial exits uh, over the last year with companies that are relatively new entrants to the scene, if you will, that had the more traditional venture route. 
One of them was uh, Six River Systems is a warehouse robotics company founded in 2015. They sold to Shopify late last year for $450 million. Um, only 60% of that was cash. So I think 270 million ish and 40% in stock. So while definitely not an earnout situation on the stock side of it, it's not cash. And the founders really need to stick around to drive that value to the purchase price implied. Again, don't get me wrong, $450 million is yet another amazing exit. But in most traditional venture eyes, that isn't a power law type exit, right? And, and this exit with the co-founder, these were the co-founders of Kiva Robotics itself, the best in the business where the warehouse robotic movement all started. So it's kind of tough rationale for other robotics businesses to project and outpace uh, that effort and that exit reality, at least in the near term, right? And so lastly, I'd, I'd bring up uh, Onshape, cloud-based engineering design software founded in 2012 that was uh, bought by PTC for about 470 million bucks. Another big exit, but again, 470 million bucks, not necessarily the power law type return given where the early round prices were pegged. And, and not to mention the Series B for that company was done at an $800 million post valuation where I'm guessing cash was likely given back to investors out of that round. I don't, I don't know that, but I mean, that's just the magnitude of what we're talking about here when it comes to pricing correctly with these companies. And, and like Six River Systems, this company was founded by a guy named John Herstick, who, who is the pioneer of engineering design software, having founded SolidWorks. So again, the best in the business with a very successful exit, but maybe not in the eyes of the pure venture capital asset class that usually only puts unicorns on a pedestal, right? And so right, right. maybe a parting comment on those, to, those two to bring even more salient point home, while I, I won't speculate on what I'm pretty sure the revenue levels were for both of those companies, let's just say those acquisition comps were done on strategic multiples that far outpaced where revenue levels could have ever justified the exit. So net of all of it is, I just think founders really need to be thoughtful as they launch businesses in these markets and not let the entire ecosystem of venture capital deals sway them to bypass um, the more salient realities at play here. And, and finally, you know, aligned to this whole discussion around exit potential and beginning with end in mind, I, I do want to give a shout out to um, my digital industrial partner in crime over at Energize Ventures, John Tuff. He recently wrote a great post uh, called Evaluating the Sex Successful Industrial Technology Exits to try and bring this important discussion more out in the open. And I was able to support and chime in on some data points toward what I think is truly an underserved discussion about exit realities for founders who are building in this industrial space. And, and anyone who wants to further the discussion, which uh, ultimately I think we need to all row the boat and help do, please reach out to John or me. We'd love to talk more about it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it strikes me, of course, I worked at, at Danaher uh, before for a number of years, and uh, we served a lot of heavy industrial and a lot of slow moving industries. You know, we, we would kind of um, uh, politely refer to them as these glacial pace movers, right? But we, <laughs> right. we loved, in a lot of ways, you know, I was taught that these are very, very attractive because the long term, the, the long term durability of cash flows is super strong. Customer retention, you know, if you have the right products and services and brands can be very, very high. Um, inertia for switching is is high as well. So customers don't switch as often, which gives you a ton of pricing power. And and essentially that all results in a in a broader, deeper, more valuable moat, right? And I, yep. I feel like the public markets like none of us want really slow time to exit, right? In venture, of course, we want speed. But the public markets 
historically and today are oriented to reward you know short term returns right everything is quarterly um mm-hmm. it is not a long term look and because of that i think the way that moats are valued versus just you know speed of revenue is totally out of balance um mm. if you can have a really strong deep long term moat and really robust and durable cash flows i i just feel like over time you know the the depth and breadth and strength of these customer moats um is going to show you know higher LTVs of course and the mm-hmm. companies that have those broader moats are going to be rewarded for them more in the future I don't disagree with any of that. And I think the way you're framing it around, how do you value the moat, even if it's at a somewhat immature revenue level, uh, couldn't couldn't agree more that um, we could probably have a whole nother discussion on that. I, I really like how you frame that in. Spot on. You, you know, Ty, do you think that product-led growth can work in these sectors? I'm a big fan of what OpenView and the rest of the folks that are helping define the product-led growth movement Um and we were co-invested with them at Project 44 when I was previously at Pritzker Group. So I, I do think it has a role to play, but I, I probably couldn't give you a, a strong opinion um, in terms of how it could help break the cycle of the slow go-to-market realities of industrial. Um, probably need to give that some more thought, but I am a fan of what they're doing for sure. Cool. Um, you know, I want to talk about you a bit and, and your your style. You and I have, have talked offline about this uh, a few times, but you know, how do you think... Or can you share with the audience how your style as an investor differs most from others? Yeah, I wouldn't really call it a style because um, I don't think I have much style. But <laughs> the, the decision, or my wife would say that as she looks at my attire from the stay at home. But you know, the decision making process for a venture fund is something I take very seriously, and I think it's also another under discussed topic. And you know, there's a whole lot of qualifiers here, right? If you know, if your fund construction model is to make lots and lots of seed investments quickly. I, I get the velocity that you have to deploy, but but where we sit, the idea that you can make an investment decision in two to three weeks worth of diligence and, and catching on to the tail end of a process, I it, it just won't ever be something that's a fit for Iron Spring and, and we'll probably lose out on some great deals because of that, but but that's the that's the tact we'll take. And so, you know, maybe defining my style, I guess, a little bit. A lot of folks in venture would say primary characteristic traits for investing oftentimes revolve around curiosity, foresight, networking, and and, and those are all hugely valuable. Don't get me wrong. But for me, I, I really think disciplined decision-making is top of list. And, and someone that made a big impact on me, and it was only last year, um, Annie Duke wrote a recent book called Thinking in Bets. And, and really, it, I thought it was not attuned to her background playing World Series of Poker or venture capital, but it, it does touch on those themes, but it's still very salient. The, the main point here is investors shouldn't be focused just on specific outcomes alone, but rather on the underlying decision-making processes that you took to try and maximize the odds of that decision having a positive outcome. And I know that's a mouthful, but we all know venture is a risky asset class and not every investment is going to have a positive outcome. But I, I do have you know a strong feeling that having a solid decision-making process as a foundation to me and my partners, how we make investments together, it definitely helps me sleep a lot better at night, uh, having had other investments where it was a sure thing with the best investors and the most capital, and, and then they go to zero, right? That's just venture. And so, um, one of the other investors I'd point out here that 
uh, made an impact on me, Ray Dalio. He's well known for his outlook on having a very disciplined and systemized investment process so that it's scalable, repeatable, and ultimately has guardrails to make sure you're not just chasing because of FOMO. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I think both of those have made a big impact on me. And you know, I'm somewhat, as you know, call it prior engineer, process-driven person. A full appreciation venture does have to have flexibility. Don't get me wrong, and you got to move quickly. Um, but I do, I do believe in process. And so, maybe oftentimes the counterback to all of this is, you know, you need to be flexible in venture, as I just mentioned, which does have a lot of merit. But I would say, you know, I've I've invested with a lot of folks and, and been very fortunate to have a lot of different partners I've worked with. You know, sometimes those comments are just deflection from those who don't have a systemized way of making decisions. And it's a little more shoot from the hip. And I think you can really get yourself into trouble in venture. And you know we're still you know, brand new fund really trying to figure this out. So it's all opinions worth what you pay for it. But I, I'd rather take my chance in my style with a very disciplined, systematic approach to how we actually make the investment decision process uh, less so focused on the outcome, um, call it in isolation. Well, outcomes are important, but the sample sizes are small, right? And a lot of people have gotten lucky and they over-index on the outcome and and not on the way that they made the decision and if the decision was the right decision at the time. Um, and there's so much just revisionist history in our industry. that Right. Um, and and if, you're waiting five to 10 years to, to see if it's even yeah. working. And, and oftentimes it's a paper game, right? So, right. right. Yeah. It's helped us certainly as a firm to kind of codify our investment decision, you know, write up these deal memos and we can go back and with a lot of, you know, the successful portcos, of course, and, and maybe those that are less so, we can look at the the decision-making framework we used and why we chose to move forward with the yes. And it's been helpful. For sure. Um, I, I do wish more discussion was on this topic because I know I'm asking a lot of emerging managers you know, how they're thinking about it, how they make partnership decisions and um, a lot of topics that are behind the scenes, but are, but are really important, right? Ty, tell us about your uh, four-part framework of the day in the life of a VC fund manager. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Happy to share. Um, Jumping out as an emerging manager, I I would definitely qualify as the hardest thing I've ever had to do professionally. And um, so goes the story of making sure you've got some great partners because it's a team effort here for sure. But, But really, you know, as I jumped in, you know, starting a new fund, there's just so many different things that could pull from your time, and you you know this, Nick. You, you've you've gone down this path well beyond the, the the old outlook I had at my other shops of getting to know founders, trying to add value, you know, do smart homework to see if you can be a part of their round, and then support them after you put money in. There's there's just so much more going on, and so you know, I needed to try to find a way again to maybe bring some process and structure to how I put my time, and so I, I think of the role as a fund manager really in this four-part framework and and bear with me here. It's three parts are in a funnel type setup. And then there's a a flywheel around that funnel. And and the first one, top of funnel is sourcing the networking, right? Uh, Lifeblood of this job is meeting great founders, having a strong network of co-investors, corporate relationships, et cetera. So that that one's pretty self-explanatory. And, you know, it it takes a high level VQ and, and you kind of find out if you're good at it or not pretty quickly. But um you move down the pipe to second part, really this gets back into the discipline decision making. I do believe running diligence correctly is is a skill set in its own right, and and there's no one right answer. Don't get me wrong, but it's it's kind of like the you know Mark Zuckerberg analogy. Every time we look at a deal, you know what, what he puts on the same shirt every day, so he didn't have to think about the decision making he's he's making. But why, why wouldn't you have a standardized process of what you need to collect from founders and make sure that you are able to benchmark versus other things you've seen? So that that 
skill set and tool set uh, running diligence can't take forever, but it's something that we put a lot of effort into. And then third part, you move to the bottom of the, the funnel. Um, once you've done the homework and, and now it's time to actually see if you can win the deal and, and negotiate a win-win for both the founder and yourself uh, amongst a whole lot of other things that you need to be doing, you know, legal docs, et cetera. So I think that's a whole nother skill set that it just takes time in the seat and, and multiple reps before you really get a feel for it. And, and then around this three-part funnel, the last part of this is um, portfolio and fund support. And portfolio support is critical, right? How do you show up once you've you've convinced a founder with all the things you say in your marketing materials that you're going to try to support them with? But but how really are you going to show up after the investment's made? And so that one is is a well path this or it's a well treaded path of conversation. The one that really, as a new emerging manager, was surprising, but at the same time you kind of got to know what you're getting into is the fund support, right? And that's everything from what is your fundraising playbook? How are you going to think about investor relations going into you know the next fund, let alone your current LPs? Uh, back office, fund administration, uh, picking healthcare plans for your employees, um, putting on your IT hat so that no one's clicking on phishing emails, right? It's, um, <laughs> it's unbelievable all the things that you have to manage. Uh, it's truly a startup in every regard and it's super exciting in, in one, one sense and it's also super challenging in another. So anyway, back to the point of the framework, it's just really um, how we try to bring in new associates and interns and really gauge, you know, hey, amongst the life cycle of things you're going to be doing here on a day-to-day basis, which changes every single day, th- this is how we try to frame it in a little bit. Yeah, it's it's funny talking to uh, prospective uh, fund managers or people that are going to launch their own firms. Um, you know, I always give the feedback, like, we all love the investing side of the business, but if you want to spend a lot of time on the investing side... You got to be careful <laughs> launching your own firm because there's a there's way more uh, to it, you know, than just doing deals and just meeting entrepreneurs all the time. Yeah, and you you made a brilliant move to pull in your brother and 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 get some support on that side for for all the other things that have to make sure that the wheels go round. And uh, I can only imagine um, super helpful to the efforts there. Yeah, we'd be dead in the water without him. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta, and there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers, constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Um, you know, what are the, do you have any must haves? Like when you're looking at a, at a deal, it sounds like you got a good system, a good framework for thinking about it. Like, are there, are there 
any unique must-haves that you have to see on a deal in order to move forward? You know, not 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 anything down the SaaS napkin rabbit hole of you know what is, what are we now at one and a half, almost two million ARR, you know, month on month growth. We, we won't look at it that way, right? We, we are investing, you know, after seed rounds, so there definitely needs to be some meat on the bone for us to do our financial diligence. But I would say the main must-have, and this sounds simple enough, but for us uh, is just unbelievably deep founder market fit. And that's a term that's thrown around a lot. But I I really believe in these industrial markets. If you haven't um, been in the seat of that operating role that you're trying to ultimately fix or sell into before jumping in to build a software solution to enable it, there's just so many nuances amongst all the go-to-market realities we've already talked about are really challenging that that gets it, it's just really hard for me to get excited about it. And so our re- most recent investment company called Mercado Labs, it's um, international supply chain visibility software. The founder, Rob Garrison, has spent three decades as an importer himself in different roles for UPS, FedEx, uh, Michaels, Kmart, so shipper and logistics side. And, and the idea that Someone would be able to leave a lab or you know just hot out undergraduate and again, no offense, understand that the, the nuances of international trade such as customs, duties, tariffs, currency manipulation, language translation, how these supplier bases work in foreign countries. It's just really hard to scale without that insight. And you know, that's at least from underwriting a deal. We don't want to underwrite to risk around the founder not understanding the market, and we'd rather take our risk in, in other places. So, uh, founder market fit is just really important to us, and, and we've got a small portfolio uh, as we just launched. But you'll see deep founder market fit with uh, each of our portfolio companies today. So, Ty, rumor has it uh, you're starting a podcast. <laughs> you and I may have talked about this. Um, lots of new podcasts these days. You know, why will yours stand out, and, and what's the objective? Well, I probably have no idea what I'm getting into, but uh, some of your encouragement here, uh, I, I am going to launch one. And, and the reason I am, uh, amongst what you said, there are a lot of great ones out there and I listen to a lot myself. I, I do think there needs to be a very curated voice balancing between the boots on the ground, industrial operating realities that we've talked about earlier, and the venture capital ecosystems capitalization strategy and outlook for startups advancing this digital industrial agenda. There there are some amazing digital industrial founder and investor stories out there that need to be told so others can learn from how they built capital or how they built their companies and capitalize them uh, so those businesses were healthy along the way. And one example for me is a guy named Rick Blada. Rick, Rick is not a, call it venture household name, but he's basically been one of the industrial IOTs, if you'll use that buzzword, pioneers over the last three decades, defining machine-to-machine communication. He was director of technology at Wonderware that went public. Then he co-founded Lighthammer, which sold to SAP. And then he most recently co-founded Thingworks, which sold to PTC in 2013. And is now, I think, the platform widely considered one of the top industrial IOT products out there. How is it that that serial digital industrial founder story is not out there for more people to share the lessons learned as as he approached these markets. So I believe those lessons learned would have really helped out a lot of the current industrial IoT founders and companies that are out there that have maybe raised venture over their skis the last few years, but now are either out of business or struggling to raise because it was too much capital, too soon, burning too quickly, um, and what are again really challenging environments. So the objective is pretty simple. 
I, I just want to form a community of discussion around the topic of venture capital and digital industrial applications so that we can accelerate everyone's learning curve a little bit more. Uh, Ty, what resources have you found particularly valuable that you'd recommend to listeners? I think we all have a, a, blog, a blog book overload with all the great contents that's out there. So I'll go super tactical for all the emerging managers listening out there and, and recommend subscribing to the, the Kaufman Fellows Journal. Uh, that the Kaufman Fellows Research Center and, and Colin West team is putting out. I, I just joined into the the newest fellows class earlier this year alongside uh, your recent guest, Jacqueline Hester over at Founder Group and some other great folks. And, and I really started to learn about all of this free data-driven content they are putting out specific to topics from uh, emerging managers like fundraising from LPs during COVID, best practices for building concise pitch decks and data rooms, uh, tips and common pitfalls to avoid regarding investor relations, uh, new fund level and personal liquidity tools for GPs. That's always a consideration, et cetera. All, all of these things that at least I'll, for my own opinion, no, no emerging manager studied in college or just knows how to do until you actually uh, jump in the arena to do it. So put a plug in here for the, the Coffin Fellows Journal and and for folks to subscribe to the newsletter. I don't think you'd regret it. Yeah, you're going through the uh, the Coffin Fellows program right now. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. A little, little different vibe since we're, we're doing everything virtually right now. But um, as Jacqueline mentioned, they, they kind of extended it for a couple of modules where we can get back into person when, that, when that's all going forward. But um, big, big fan of the program for sure. Okay, good. Um, Ty, what do you know you need to get better at? Maybe as we, as we hit on a little earlier, uh, with the outlook that T2, D3 revenue ramps and blitzscaling really aren't conducive to these legacy industries, um, as well as the exit markers, I think, to date supporting that outlook, in my opinion. I really struggle with helping companies and I'm continuing to work on how do you balance taking a practical customer-driven approach to, to drive near-term product value versus setting out on a burn ahead of your skis, big vision, platform before product mentality that that is more conducive to the venture power law rule, honestly. So, um, after investing and seeing enough deals in this ecosystem, pattern recognition can really lead you to be a little bit more cynical than you want to be on, on scaling than, than oftentimes you want to be in venture capital. So I think my challenge, I'm constantly trying to work on my communication so that uh, when I talk with founders and, and try to share some of these lessons learned, um, I'm, I'm not just emphasizing the challenges, but also if we do it right and capitalize the business correctly, how big an opportunity exists to make an impact uh, within these markets. So it has to be a balance. Very good. And then finally, uh, what's the best way for listeners to connect with you and, and follow the firm? We're pretty easy to find. Check out our website at ironspring.com. Uh, my email is ty at ironspring.com and would, would love to hear from you. Awesome. Well, Ty, it's always a pleasure uh, getting a chance to catch up and um, trade trade stories on industrials and, and, and investing <laughs> in them. Uh, looking forward to the next one. And thanks so much for the time today. Well, thank you for having me. There's so many great investors that have been on the podcast and I'm, I'm really happy to have snuck on here. So thanks, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Thanks. That will wrap up today's episode. Thanks for joining us here on the show. And if you'd like to get involved further, you can join our investment group for free on AngelList. Head over to angel.co and search for New Stack Ventures. There you can back the syndicate to see our deal flow, see how we choose startups to invest in, and read our thesis on investment in each startup we choose. As always, show notes and links for the interview are at fullratchet.net. And until next time, remember to overprepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. 
Thanks for joining us. 